Chapter Eleven of Sixty Years in Southern California, eighteen fifty three to nineteen thirteen by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chapter Eleven The Rush for Gold, eighteen fifty five. As I have already related, I made fifteen hundred dollars in a few months, and in January, eighteen fifty five, my brother advised me to form a partnership with men of maturer years. In this, I acquiesced. He thereupon helped to organize the firm of Rich, Newmark, and Company, consisting of Elias Laventhal, who reached here in 1854 and died on January 20, 1920, Jacob Rich, and myself. Rich was to be the San Francisco resident partner, while Laventhal and I undertook the management of the business in Los Angeles. We prospered from the beginning, deriving much benefit from our San Francisco representation, which resulted in our building up something of a wholesale business. In the early fifties, Los Angeles was the meeting place of a board of land commissioners appointed by the national government to settle land claims and to prepare the way for that granting of patents to owners of Southern California ranches, which later awakened from time to time such interest here. This interest was largely due to the fact that the Mexican authorities, in numerous instances, had made the same grant to different persons, often confusing matters badly. Cameron E. Tom, then Deputy Land Agent, took testimony for the Commissioners. In 1855, this board completed its labors. The members were Highland Hall, later Governor of Vermont, Harry I. Thornton, and Thompson Campbell, and during the season they were here, these Land Commissioners formed no unimportant part of the Los Angeles legal world. Thomas A. Delano, whose name is perpetuated in our local geography, was a sailor who came to Los Angeles on January 4, 1855, after which, for fifteen or sixteen years, he engaged in freighting. He married Senorita Soledad, daughter of John C. Vajar, the well-known Spanish Californian. Slowness and uncertainty of mail delivery in our first decades affected often vital interests, as is shown in the case of the half-breed Alvitre, who, as I have said, was sentenced to be executed. One reason why the vigilantes, headed by Mayor Foster, dispatched Brown was the expectation that both he and Alvitre would get a stay from higher authority. And sure enough, a stay was granted Alvitre, but the document was delayed in transit until the murderer, on January 12, 1855, had forfeited his life. Curiously enough, another Alvitre, an aged Californian man named José Claudio, also of El Monte, but six years later atrociously murdered his aged wife, and on April 28, 1861, he was hanged. The lynchers placed him on a horse under a tree, and then drove the animal away, leaving him suspended from a limb. Washington's birthday in 1855 was made merrier by festivities conducted under the auspices of the city guards, of which W. W. Twist, a grocer and commission merchant at Beaudry's Block, Aliso Street, and afterward in partnership with Casildo Aguilar, was captain. The same organization gave its first anniversary ball in May. Twist was a ranger, or member of the Volunteer Mounted Police, and it was he who, in March, 1857, formed the first rifle company. In the early sixties he was identified with the sheriff's office, after which, venturing into Mexico, he was killed. Henry C. G. Schaefer came to Los Angeles on March 16, 1855, and opened the first gunsmith shop in a little adobe on the east side of Los Angeles Street, near Commercial, which he soon surrounded with an attractive flower garden. A year after Schaefer came, he was followed by another gunsmith, 
August Stormer. Schaefer continued, however, to sell and mend guns and to cultivate flowers, and twenty years later found him on Wilmington Street, near New Commercial, still encircled by one of the choicest collections of flowers in the city, and the first to have brought here the night-blooming Sirius. With more than regret, therefore, I must record that in the middle seventies this warm-hearted friend of children, so deserving of the goodwill of everyone, committed suicide. Gold was discovered at Havila, Kern County, in 1854, and by the early spring of 1855 exaggerated accounts of the find had spread broadcast over the entire state. Yarn after yarn passed from mouth to mouth, one of the most extravagant of the reports being that a Mexican doctor and alchemist suddenly rode into Mariposa from the hills, where he had found a gulch paved with gold, his horse and himself being fairly covered with bags of nuggets. The rush by gold-seekers on their way from the north to Los Angeles, the southern gateway to the fields, began in January, 1855, and continued a couple of years, every steamer being loaded far beyond the safety limit, and soon miles of the rough highways leading to the mines were covered with every conceivable form of vehicle and struggling animals, as well as with thousands of foot-sore prospectors, unable to command transportation at any price. For a while, ten, twelve, and even fifteen percent interest a month was offered for small amounts of money by those of the prospectors who needed assistance, a rate based on the calculation that a wide-awake digger would be sure of eight to ten dollars a day, and that with such returns one should certainly be satisfied. This time the excitement was a little too much for the Los Angeles editors to ignore, and in March the publisher of the Southern Californian, himself losing his balance, issued an extra with these startling announcements. Stop the press. Glorious news from Kern River. Bring out the big gun. There are a thousand gulches rich with gold and room for ten thousand miners. Miners average fifty dollars a day. One man with his own hands took out one hundred sixty dollars in a day. Five men in ten days took out four thousand five hundred dollars. The affair proved, however, a ridiculous failure, and William Marsh, an old Los Angeles settler and a very decent chap, who conducted a store at Havila, was among those who suffered heavy loss. Although some load-grade ore was found, it was generally not in paying quantities. The dispersion of this adventurous mass of humanity brought to Los Angeles many undesirable people, among them gamblers and desperadoes, who flocked in the wake of the gold-diggers, making another increase in the rough element. Before long, four men were fatally shot and half a dozen wounded near the plaza one Sunday night. When the excitement about the gold finds along the Kern River was at its height, Frank Le Corvier arrived here, March 6th, on the steamship America, lured by reports then current in San Francisco. To save the fare of five dollars, he trudged for ten hours all the way from San Pedro, carrying on his shoulders forty pounds of baggage, but on putting up at the United States Hotel, then recently started, he was dissuaded by some experienced miners from venturing farther up the country. Soon after, he met a fellow countryman from Konigsberg named Arnold, who induced him, on account of his needy condition, to take work in his saloon. But disliking his duties and the rather frequent demands upon his nervous system through being shot at, several times, by patrons not exactly satisfied with Le Courvier's locomotion and his method of serving, the young German quit the job and went to work as a carriage painter for John Goller. In October, Captain Henry Hancock, then county surveyor, engaged Le Courvier as a flagman at a salary of sixty dollars, which was increased twenty-five per cent on the trip of the surveyors to the Mojave. March ninth, 1855, witnessed the organization of the first Odd Fellows Lodge, 
number 35, instituted here. General Ezra Drown was the leading spirit, and others associated with him were E. Wilson High, Alexander Crabb, L. C. Goodwin, William C. Ardinger, Morris L. Goodman, and M. M. Davis. During the 50s, the Bella Union passed under several successive managements. On July 22, 1854, Dr. Macy sold it to W. G. Ross and a partner named Crockett. They were succeeded on April 7, 1855, by Robert S. Herford. Ross was killed some years afterward by C. P. Duane in San Francisco. In pursuit of business, in 1855, I made a number of trips to San Bernardino, some of which had their amusing incidents, and most of which afforded pleasure or an agreeable change. Meeting Sam Meyer on one of these occasions, just as I was mounted and ready to start, I invited him to accompany me, and as Sam assured me that he knew where to secure a horse, we started down the street together and soon passed a shop in which there was a Mexican customer holding on to a reata leading out through the door to his saddled nag. Sam walked in, and having a casual acquaintance with the man, asked him if he would lend him the animal for a while. People were generous in those days, and the good-hearted Mexican, thinking perhaps that Sam was just going round the corner, carelessly answered, "'Si, senor,' and proceeded with his bartering. Sam, on the other hand, came out of the shop and led the horse away. After some days of minor adventures, when we lost our path near the old mission and had to put back to El Monte for the night, we arrived at San Bernardino, and on our return— after watering the horses, Sam found in his unhaltered steed such a veritable tartar that in sheer desperation he was about to shoot the borrowed beast. On another one of these trips I was entertained by Simon Jackson, a merchant of that town, who took me to a restaurant kept by a Captain Viner. This, the best eating place in town, was about ten feet square and had a mud floor. It was a miserably hot day, so hot in fact that I distinctly remember the place being filled with flies and that the butter had run to oil. Nature had not intended Viner to cater to such sensitive stomachs, at least not on the day of which I speak, and to make matters worse, Viner was then his own waiter. He was wallowing around in his bare feet, and was otherwise unkempt and unclean, and the whole scene is therefore indelibly impressed on my memory. When the slovenly captain bawled out, which will you have, chops or steak, Jackson straightened up, threw out his chest, and in evidence of the vigor of his appetite, just as vociferously answered, I want a stake as big as a mule's foot. Living in San Bernardino was a customer of ours, a celebrity by the name of Louis Jacobs. He had joined the Mormon church and was a merchant of worth and consequence. Jacobs was an authority on all matters of finance connected with his town, and anyone wishing to know the condition of businessmen in that neighborhood had only to apply to him. Once when I was in San Bernardino, I asked him for information regarding a prospective patron, who was rather a gay sort of individual, and this was Jacobs's characteristic reply. A very fine fellow, he plays a little poker and drinks a little whiskey. Jacobs became a banker, and in 1900 died on shipboard while returning from Europe, leaving a comfortable fortune and the more valuable asset of a good name. In referring to Alexander and Mellis and their retirement from business, I have said that merchandise required by Southern Californians in the early days, and before the absorption of the Los Angeles market by San Francisco, was largely transported by sailing vessels from the east. When a ship arrived, it was an event worthy of special notice, and this was particularly the case when such sailing craft came less and less often into port. Sometimes the arrival of the vessel was heralded in advance, and when it was unloaded, the shrewd merchants used decidedly modern methods for the marketing of their wares. In 1855, for example, Johnson and Allenson advertised as follows. 
new goods new goods direct from the atlantic states 112 days passage samples of the cargo at our store in the stearns building and the entire cargo will be disposed of cheap for cash goods delivered at san pedro or los angeles from the above announcement it must not be inferred that these los angeles tradesmen brought to this port the whole shipload of merchandise such ships left but a small part of their cargo here the major portion being generally consigned to the north the dependence on san francisco continued until the completion of our first transcontinental railway in the meantime los angeles had to rely on the northern city for nearly everything livestock being about the only exception and this relation was shown in eighteen fifty five by the publication of no less than four columns of san francisco advertisements in the regular issue of a los angeles newspaper much of this commerce with the southland for years was conducted by means of schooners which ran irregularly and only when there was cargo they plied between san francisco and san pedro and by agreement put in at santa barbara and other coast places such as port san luis when the shipments warranted such stops n pierce and company were the owners one of these vessels in eighteen fifty five was the clipper schooner laura bevan captained by f morton and later wrecked at sea when frank le Couvier just escaped taking passage on her and another was the sea serpent whose captain bore the name of fish i have said that in eighteen forty nine the old side-wheeler gold hunter had commenced paddling the waters around here but so far as i can remember she was not operating in eighteen fifty three the goliath on the other hand was making two round trips a month carrying passengers mail and freight from san francisco to san diego and stopping at various coast points including san pedro in a vague way i also remember the mail steamer ohio under one of the haley's the seabird at one time commanded by salisbury haley and the southerner and if i am uncertain about the others the difficulty may be due to the fact that because of the unseaworthiness and miserable service owners change the names of ships from time to time in order to allay the popular prejudice and distrust so that during some years several names were successively applied to the same vessel it must have been about eighteen fifty five or eighteen fifty six that the senator brought to the coast by captain coffin january twenty eighth eighteen fifty three was put on the southern run and with her advent began a considerably improved service as the schooners were even more irregular than the steamers i generally divided my shipments giving to the latter what i needed immediately and consigning by the schooners whose freighted rates were much lower what could stand delay one more word about the goliath one day in the eighties i heard that she was still doing valiant service having been sold to a puget sound company recalling these old-time side-wheelers whose paddles churned the water into a frothing foam out of all proportion to the speed with which they drove the boat along her course i recall with a feeling almost akin to sentiment the roar of the signal gun fired just before landing making the welcome announcement as well to the traveller as to his friends awaiting him on shore that the voyage had been safely consummated shortly after my arrival in los angeles the transportation service was enlarged by the addition of a state line from san francisco which ran along the coast from the northern city to the old town of san diego making stops all along the road including san jose san luis obispo santa barbara and san buenaventura and particularly at los angeles where not only horses but stages and supplies were kept the stage to san diego followed for the most part the route selected later by the santa fe railroad these old-time stages remind me again of the few varieties of vehicles then in use john goller had met with much skepticism and ridicule as i have said when he was planning an improvement on the old and clumsy carreta 
and when his new ideas did begin to prevail he suffered from competition e l scott and company came as blacksmiths and carriage makers in eighteen fifty five and george borum was another who arrived about the same time ben mclaughlin was also an early wheelwright among Goller's assistants who afterward opened shops for themselves there were three lewises roeder lichtenberger and breer roeder and lichtenberger footnote lichtenberger died some years ago roeder died february twentieth nineteen fifteen and footnote having a place on the west side of spring street just south of first thomas w seeley captain of the senator was very fond of los angeles diversions as will appear from the following anecdote of the late fifties after bringing his ship to anchor off the coast he would hasten to los angeles leaving his vessel in command of first mate butters to complete the voyage to san diego and return which consumed forty-eight hours during this interval the old captain regularly made his headquarters at the bella union there he would spend practically all of his time playing poker then considered the gentleman's game of chance and which since the mania for chemical purity had not yet possessed los angeles was looked upon without criticism when the steamer returned from san diego captain seeley if neither his own interest in the game nor his fellow players interest in his pocketbook had ebbed would postpone the departure of his ship frequently for even as much as twenty-four hours thus adding to the irregularity of sailings which i have already mentioned many in fact were the inconveniences to which early travellers were subjected from this infrequency of trips and failure to sail at the stated hour and to aggravate the trouble the vessels were all too small especially when a sudden excitement due perhaps to some new report of the discovery of gold increased the number of intending travellers it even happened sometimes that persons were compelled to postpone their trip until the departure of another boat speaking of anchoring vessels off the coast i may add that high seas frequently made it impossible to reach the steamers announced to leave at a certain time in which case the officers used to advertise in the newspapers that the time of departure had been changed when captain seeley was killed in the ada hancock disaster in eighteen sixty three first mate butters was made captain and continued for some time in command just what his real fitness was i cannot say but it seemed to me that he did not know the coast any too well this impression also existed in the minds of others and once when we were supposed to be making our way to san francisco the heavy fog lifted and revealed the shore thirty miles north of our destination whereupon a fellow passenger exclaimed why captain this isn't at all the part of the coast where we should be the remark stung the sensitive butters who probably was conscious enough of his shortcomings and straightway he threatened to put the offending passenger in irons george f lampson was an auctioneer who arrived in los angeles in eighteen fifty five aside from the sale of livestock there was not much business in his line although as i have said dr osborne the postmaster also had an auction room sales of household effects were held on a tuesday or a wednesday while horses were offered for sale on saturdays lampson had the typical auctioneer's personality and many good stories were long related illustrating his humor wit and amusing impudence by which he often disposed even to his friends of almost worthless objects at high prices a daughter gertrude widely known as lillian nance o'neill never married another daughter lillian is the wife of william desmond the actor in eighteen fifty four congress made an appropriation of fifty thousand dollars which went far toward opening up the trade that later flourished between los angeles and salt lake city this money was for the survey and location of a wagon road between san bernardino and the utah capital and on the first of may eighteen fifty five gilbert and company established their great salt lake express over that government route 
it was at first a pony express making monthly trips carrying letters and stopping at such stations as coal creek fillmore city summit creek and american fork and finally reaching great salt lake and early having good los angeles connections it prospered sufficiently to substitute a wagon service for the pony express although this was at first intended only as a means of connecting the mormon capital with the more recently founded mormon settlement at san bernardino the extension of the service to los angeles eventually made this city the terminus considerable excitement was caused by the landing at san pedro in eighteen fifty five of a shipload of mormons from honolulu though i do not recall that any more recruits came subsequently from that quarter the arrival of those adherents of brigham young added color to his explanation that he had established a mormon colony in california as a base of operations and supplies for converts from the sandwich islands thomas foster a kentuckian was the sixth mayor of los angeles taking office in may eighteen fifty five he lived opposite masonic hall on main street with his family among whom were some charming daughters and was in partnership with dr r t hayes in apothecary's hall near the post office he was one of the first masons here and was highly esteemed and he early declared himself in favor of better school and water facilities about the second week of june eighteen fifty five appeared the first spanish newspaper in los angeles under the american regime it was called el clamor publico and made its appeal socially to the better class of native californians politically it was edited for republicans especially for the supporters in eighteen fifty six of fremont for president its editor was francisco p ramirez but though he was an able journalist and a good typo becoming between eighteen sixty 1860 and eighteen sixty two state printer in sonora and in eighteen sixty five spanish translator for the state of california the clamor on december thirty first eighteen fifty nine went the way of so many other local journals End of chapter 11